Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished from the Classical Ideas podcast. This is a podcast run by Greg Soden, and it's absolutely terrific. If you like the NBN, I'm sure that you'll like Classical Ideas. You can find it at classicalideaspodcast.lipson.com or on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the following interview. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. If you had an ordinary public school experience in the United States like me, you probably were taught about the immigration to the United States through Ellis Island, life in Manhattan as a large part of the American experience, and even some about the ethnicities, religions, and cultures of the various populations of people who immigrated to North America in the last few hundred years. What you may not have learned about is economic history, the development of major corporations that still affect society today, and how different ethnic groups developed economically. And today we're touching on all of those topics. So, so far, Classical Ideas has been largely about religious practice, but today's topic is about the economic history of a topic and group you've probably never thought about or heard about. Jews in the anti- and post-bellum Reconstruction era Southern United States. I know I certainly had never considered that there might be a Jewish history in the American South. That might sound naive, but I had just assumed that the New York experience was the story. And I am very pleased to have had that assumption disproven. So today's conversation is with Professor Michael R. Cohen, Chair of the Jewish Studies Program at Tulane University in New Orleans. He blows this assumption of mine apart, and I'm glad that he did. Dr. Cohen has a new book out called Cotton Capitalists, American Jewish Entrepreneurship in the Reconstruction Era South. The book came out recently from NYU Press. So without further delay, let's get to my conversation with Dr. Michael R. Cohen. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Can you introduce yourself to the audience and discuss your areas of academic specialty? Sure. Well, uh, I am a professor, as you mentioned, down in uh, New Orleans at Tulane. Uh, I actually grew up in Maine and worked my way south. Um, And so my graduate work uh, was at Brandeis, and I started off my career looking at conservative Judaism. And so my first book was about the origins of that movement. It was religious history, kind of religious history from a social perspective. And frequently, you know, you kind of, as you start in one area, you kind of continue on in that area. But I ended up switching a little bit, well, a lot actually, and started moving um, into Jewish economic history. I just um, really, really sort of got... got, 
hooked, I guess, by a few quotes that I, that I found. And I really started digging deep and ended up kind of switching over to this Jewish economic history side, which is um, what, what Cotton Capitalist is all about. So a little bit of a roundabout way to get there, but, um, but that's where I am. I found that to be such a compelling angle of your work as well, because um, the economic side is not something that I am really all that familiar with. So you are filling in a large gap in my own knowledge with this book. So I appreciated the topic and the content of the book for giving me this new perspective, because it's not something I ever really considered. So- yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. It's just um, economic history has been something that um, we really haven't explored enough in Jewish history. And I think... Um, you know, there, it, it just explains so many things that we really haven't been able to explain um, before. So it's really, um, it's really, it, it's, I've really enjoyed kind of digging into it and thinking about problems and why they happened with this kind of new, you know, new angle in mind, I guess you'd say. One of the things that really captured my attention in the book is the transformation of the Jewish people on the North American continent. So I have a big picture question for you. How did Jews transform from like a wandering peddler lifestyle to one that catapulted them into the forefront of like the post-bellum reconstruction America? Yeah, and that's a great that that is sort of the overarching question of the book. It's so I would argue that there were two things. Uh, first of all, there were structural forces that really positioned them um, for success. So before the war, as you mentioned, this kind of wandering, um, peddling-based lifestyle, Jews were really um, that's what they were doing, and and they were on the margins of the cotton industry. And some were peddlers, some graduated to you know general store owners in these interior towns, but. The financing of the cotton industry was generally conducted in large port cities such as New Orleans. And so Jews in the role that they were in really were not central um, at that time. So after the war, you have the growth of the railroad and the telegraph, and you have other technology and other forces. Cotton marketing, cotton, cotton financing really moves to the interior towns in which Jews were already peddling or already opening stores. And so the market kind of came to them. They were in a sense in the right place um, at the right time. But in addition to these structural forces, it was really about these ethnic economic networks, and that's what this book's really about, that provided this competitive advantage that allows allowed Jews to to really thrive. Um, the the economic transactions in this period, and I know we can kind of dig into into some of these things, um, you know, in a little bit. But they were economics was predicated on trust, and you know, J.P. Morgan has some of these great quotes that really talk about trust just being the fundamental basis of business. And for ethnic minorities, trust ethnic minorities who were not always trusted by a large society. Trust often boiled down to this shared ethnicity. So Jews would trust other Jews because Jews were strange to, you know, to, to, to Southerners who had never maybe met a Jew. And so these levels of, of trust, really, this is how um, business was done. So after the war, um, Southern banks had failed. There was a real hole in the economy. There was a need for investment. There was a need for credit and capital. And banks just couldn't provide that credit that was needed to restart the economy. And so lending fell to those who had already established these trust networks and who could access the credit that was necessary to start the flow of cotton. And those who had these networks um, really had a built-in competitive advantage. And, you know, these networks were just created because um, ethnic minorities weren't 
often often were not trusted by large society. So Jews had access to these networks, and Jews were not the only minority, and this is the point that I really try to make in the book as well, to have these ethnic networks. If I had focused on the cotton industry in Egypt, for example, I could have written a very similar book about Greek merchants and how um, how Greeks were able to kind of create these networks as well because they were uh, they were a minority group. But these networks of trust really allowed Jews to successfully conduct business to um, really move from this again this wandering peddling based lifestyle into very um, central role in in um, in global capitalism. Cotton was the most important crop uh, really in the world at that time. This is a portion of like American history that's like so brand new to me. And, you know, like many Americans who grew up in like the American public school system, I really had only ever studied like Lower East Side New York, Ellis Island, and like this experience that you referred to as like the assumed quintessential American Jewish experience. So I don't really associate before reading this book Judaism with the South pre and post civil war. I mean, so this is so fascinating. Did this anti and postbellum era transform American Judaism in general, just as much as like the quintessential version that most of us have heard about in high school American history? Like, was this just as transformative? Yeah, no, I mean, so we, again, we tend to think of Ellis Island and this kind of being, you know, the, the beginning of, of Jewish settlement in America being the end of the, you know, 19th century and early 20th century. But there really was, first, there were Sephardic Jews who came uh, to America before it was the United States of America. Uh, and then there were these German and Alsatian Jews who came in the mid-19th century, and they really created the framework, I would say, for um, the American Jewish community. They they face the same issues that East European Jews would later face, this idea of how can you be American and how can you be Jewish at the same time. And they set patterns, they created a framework, they set models for integration, they, they kind of created uh, the image of the Jew, or they moved, I guess, the Jew from rather an image to a real person um, among Americans in the 19th century. So, um, there were leadership structures, there were organizations that were in place uh, when these East European Jews came. And so, you know, we like, again, to think that, that these East Europeans came to the Lower East Side and there was nothing there, but there already were, um, were Jewish organizations um, that were set up in America that would really help those Jews to, um, to, to integrate and become Americans. So one of the stories... Um one of the characters in the story that really stands out to me is the recurring appearance of Julius Weiss. So what was it about the story of Julius Weiss um, that captured your attention? And why did you start the book with him? And why does he appear throughout the whole book as such a recurring presence? Yeah, well, I think so. This is this is part of you know to me the fun of history and the 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 exciting part of reading it, really being able to dig into archives and you know these are real people who make real choices who are faced with real decisions and so the figure of Weiss really um, came alive for me. He really lived the story. He came over on a on a steamship, knowing only a you know a cousin and you know people from his hometown came to start a new life, started out as peddling, <clears throat> then worked his way up the ladder, 
was able to own stores and became incredibly successful and then later was able to transition into, you know, a new economy which was, you know, based largely on investment banking more than um, more than these sort of trust networks that I talk about. So he's a figure who I think runs the entire um, runs the entire spectrum. And so, you know, as I was writing this, I tried to come back to individual people, individual places to to sort of be touchstones throughout the story so we can see how there was um, how there was change over time. And I think Weiss is, is really reflective of that larger story. Did you have any other favorite characters that jumped out at you besides Weiss? Because he's the one who jumps out to me. Were there any others that jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, so Isaac Lowenberg, who was a mayor in uh, in Natchez, Mississippi, was a really um, was a really interesting, you know, fun sort of character. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of these families that I wrote about, a lot of these names that I wrote about, if you you know look around New Orleans and look around the South, you still see some of these names. And so it was really um, neat and fascinating for me to start to make some of these you know, connections when people said, oh, yeah, here you're writing about, you know, you're writing about my relative. Uh, and so that was really kind of fun. Again, you know, you're, you're dealing with a couple of a couple of generations removed, but it really, again, helps to helps to just hammer home the point that you're writing about real people. Speaking of like the families <clears throat> who lived in the South, who were Jewish um, in pre and post Civil War era America, I was really struck by the stories of the old synagogues in the book and um and then i found out that it's possible so i did a little digging on this and i found out that it's that it's possible to take southern jewish heritage tours and this was like so amazing to me because i do not associate judaism with the american south did you um do any research in the south at these southern synagogues well i did some uh so i i visited a lot of these synagogues a lot of these towns some of them to do research, others just to get the feel of the place that you know that you're writing for, writing about. It's it's very easy to sort of get lost. You know, I kind of um, liken it to, to to learning about the Civil War and then seeing Civil War battlefields, and all of a sudden things clicking in in your mind. So I visited a lot of these towns to try to get a sense of the layout, to try to get a sense of of of, uh, of you know who lived where. Um, I did step, you know, I, I set foot into the synagogues, those that 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 still existed, um, but. You know, I did some archival research uh, in you know towns that had that had stronger um, archives uh, in Natchez, Mississippi. I did uh, I did quite a bunch, and I'll I'll tell you what really one of the things that really you know stood out to me. There's a synagogue in uh, St. Francisville, Louisiana, and this was a town that just captivated me because. I kept hearing of this town, Bayou Sarah, Bayou Sarah, and you look on a map and there's no Bayou Sarah. There's a creek, you know, called the Bayou Sarah, uh, but it just doesn't exist. And so as I was beginning my research into this, I said, okay, um, I gotta, I've got to figure this out. <laughs> and so this town of St. Francisville, which has this beautiful old synagogue that's been restored recently, and we're, you know, we're actually hoping to do a book talk in the synagogue, which I think is going to be really, um, really, really cool. Very but, cool. But so this town is up on a bluff, and when you drive down the hill, there's just nothing. There's, you know, a couple old, uh, old abandoned buildings and uh, kind of a little rail car that, that you know, pays homage to a, to a, a railroad that once was there. Down that hill, though, was a thriving community, a huge mercantile hub, tremendous hub particularly uh, for Jewish life that's just totally gone. And that was kind of one of those moments where I was really – I really felt like, okay, 
I'm bringing back a story here. This is a town that was, you know, the, the, the spoiler alert, it was, um, it was washed away. It was flooded. It was flooded again and again. And finally, those residents decided to just move up the, the hill. So that moves a little bit beyond your question of synagogues. But I think being able to see the character, being able to see the places that these people visited and lived, um, that to me is, is so much of the exciting part about writing history. Did you have any other like favorite experiences researching for the book? Like, were there some days in the research where you, but besides that, so that one that you just mentioned is so incredible. Did you have any other days where you were just kind of blown away by your own discoveries? Um, yeah. So, you know, archival work sometimes is like finding a needle in a haystack. Uh, usually, you know, well, sometimes you don't find a needle, but when you do find a needle, it, it, uh, it's really exciting. So I spent a lot of time looking at the RG Dunn records, which are these credit reports that are just fascinating. They're handwritten credit reports. And, and, you know, eventually they, they go to number and letter ratings, you know, like we're familiar with today. But, initially and you know even even as they started moving to numbers and letters these reports were just narratives and so you know you may see the description of a business you may see these stories i I love you know there was one 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 guy who went into a town and said this guy seems like a good businessman but he's going to drink himself to death Mm -hmm. and then comes back uh, a year later and says this guy drank himself to death Uh, so 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 you you get some interesting stories that way but but i'll tell you one one thing that really um kind of one of those aha moments is um i worked with a colleague of mine here at tulane uh rich campanella who um helped me with some of the gis maps that i used and I had this hunch, you know, you spend all this time in the archives and you have so much information and then you sort of have to begin the process of narrowing it down and and you have these questions of why did something happen? Well, when we mapped cotton production and Jewish population and railroads and rivers as these kind of transportation routes that became so important, all of a sudden, the moment we, you know, kind of clicked, you know, clicked submit on that on that map, if you will, it just appeared. And the story just appeared because I had a hunch that Jews were living in these cotton areas. I had a hunch that this is kind of what was what the story was. And by using mapping, you know, boom, there it was, you know, clear as day on a on a sheet of paper. And what I had thought was kind of a hunch and what others had thought was a hunch and what others thought weren't was not the case. All of a sudden, we were able to, to pinpoint that. So those are kind of a few of those, you know, really, really aha moments that that, you know, I really enjoyed. Awesome. So if you so I kind of want to draw a line between contemporary Judaism and Judaism in the 18th hundreds and I'm not really sure if you'll how much you'll know about this but um, I want to ask anyway do you know anything about like what the religious practices of southern Jews were like in the 1800s like were they very public or were they very private like I know there was a lot of discrimination that Jews were facing in the south during the time um, like what would we recognize or not recognize in the Judaism of today compared to Judaism in the 1800s in the south well, so the South um, really comes to to embrace Reform Judaism, and Reform Judaism doesn't really become a movement per se, um, you know, until the uh, you know the the institutional um, you know apparatuses, I guess, begin to emerge in you know 1870s, uh, 1880s. But there was a a move toward reform in the South because it it fit the lifestyle. So for example, we talk about this, you know, peddling and, and, and moving from one community to the next. Well, it's really hard to keep kosher um, when 
you are doing that. It's hard um, to follow a lot of, of, of other Jewish laws. It's hard to observe the Sabbath if you are, you know, um, if, if you're on the road and if you're the only Jew uh, around. So um, the South came to, to really embrace um, embrace Reform Judaism. This a lot of you know, and this this doesn't just it's not just limited to the South, but but part of what these Jews wanted to do is make their religion less peculiar to outsiders. Um, so they begin to adopt terms like the Jewish minister. Uh, they will build synagogues that, on the outside, um, come to resemble churches, and it's it's they would call their their you know their houses of worship oftentimes the Jewish church. Hmm. And so I think a couple, you know, it shows on one hand that Jews are very concerned about maintaining their Judaism, but also integrating and showing their neighbors that, um, that, that they can be Americans, that this is an American religion as well. But, you know, if, if, um, if anyone's ever visited the, the Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, it's, um, it's, it's one of the earliest, you know, synagogues, dates, dates back to the colonial days. And if you look on the outside, it just looks like a house, um, you know, very similar to synagogues in Amsterdam. And the message there was that Jews, we want to keep our religion private. You know, we're still concerned about, you know, anti-Jewish, you know, uh, uprisings and sentiments. And, you know, Jews back then were not ready to really bring their Jewishness out into the public sphere. But then if you look in the 19th century, if you look at some of these, you know, very impressive, you know, synagogue edifices, if you look at, you know, Beth Elohim in Charleston, if you look at synagogues in Cincinnati, um, they take on this, this this, you know, much more ornate outward appearance. And I think that's very reflective of how Jews thought, how Jews saw rather their place um, in American society then. So our Judaism today still does, you know, kind of carry a lot of those, those, the same sort of pattern, I guess, of how can you be Jewish? How can you be American? How can you adapt your religious practice so that you can kind of fulfill both of those, uh, both of those desires? These Jews sort of set that, you know, largely set that that precedent. And East European Jews who came to the Lower East Side faced the same dilemma, and I think it's something that we still face today. Something that I was really kind of surprised by in the book is a little less savory, and that's the revelation to me that Jews in the South were buying and owning slaves as well. Did that surprise you at all? Well, you know, we we sort of like to tell this this narrative that you know Jews were a, a persecuted people, which they were, um, and as a result, they they better felt the you know understood the plight of other um, of other persecuted peoples, and that would sort of translate into um, you know into into better treatment. But I think. Um, that's not always the case. Um, Jews were white Southerners, and they lived in, you know, at this time in an era where there was a clear black-white binary. Um, and, you know, some opposed, some people certainly opposed slavery and then later segregation and, and, and Jim Crow, but um, a lot did not. Um, Jews, you know, it was... Again, you kind of call it the the, the unsavory um, part of the story. One thing I would note, though, um, is that if we kind of look at numbers of slave ownership, particularly in, say, the 1840s, those Jews who reached economic prominence did own slaves, like um, you know others in in you know in in society around them, but not 
a lot of Jews reached economic prominence um, by that time, before the outbreak of the of the Civil War. And mm. so um, I think it's easy to look and say, well, see, not that many Jews own slaves, but we also kind of have to think about the economic position that those Jews were in. And if slavery had continued into the, you know, 1860s, 1870s, would more Jews have been in a position to own slaves? Yes. Would they have, you know, we don't know. Right. And so, I mean, so even as the, um, the Jews in the South are being, you know, a little more accepted, um, as you mentioned earlier, they still remain, there's a quote in the book that really struck me. They are integrated outsiders. And you describe a lot of like distrust and bigotry or wariness. So like when you read these things, like how far would you say we've come as a society in progress against hate and bigotry? Well, okay, so a couple a couple big questions there. One is the yeah. historian in me and one is the try to step out of the historian in me, which I'm, you know, always always you know, always hesitant to do, but I'll try to give you give you as, as as much of an answer as I can. So the term integrated outsiders is one that um, Anton Hicke uses in his book about um, about Reconstruction, which focuses more on um, on the East Coast uh, in the the southern um, in the in the South. And I, I love that term because I think it really describes a lot of you know what these Jews were going through. They, in so many instances, were integrated, yet they still were. Um, they still were were outsiders in many ways. They still did not um, always feel like Southerners, and there were times where they were not treated as as Southerners. So I think that term really, um, really, really captures it. And you know, I, I, I don't worry. I use it in quotes, and I attribute it to Anton. And I think it's just a great way to think of the. Um, I think it's a great way to think of the period. How far have we come as a society? I, I mean. I, <laughs> Not far enough. Uh, I think that's that is the you know that's that's the short answer. Um, not nearly not nearly far enough. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of examples in the book too. Like on page seventy seven, you call them uh, that you call the Jews in the South the that tribe we cannot recommend. So, I mean, whenever you're reading these primary sources, I mean, what did these like? How did you find these things? Like, how did you find these terminology that um, 1800s white Southerners were calling their fellow merchants who they could have done business with? Yeah. So, so, so that quote, um, if I if I recall, was from a an R.G. Dunn agent who was a, a credit reporter, um, and. So I guess we kind of have to step back and think about the context. A lot of people had really never met a Jew. A lot of people had a stereotypical image of of, of the Shylock figure, and here comes a Jew um, as a, a peddler. A lot of Jews did not trust these outside credit reporters and didn't want to open up their books to them. And as a result, a lot of these credit reporters didn't necessarily um, didn't necessarily trust Jews. So that's the charitable explanation. You know, the other side is there was a lot of fear of the outsider, fear of the unknown. Um, who was this figure? Um, I, I also found, you know, in, in that same sort of vein, uh, I also found a lot of references 
you know, after the war to people who said these Jews, these northern Jews came down, you know, in force after the after the war, when in fact, a lot of the businesses that, you know, were so central to the economy at the time, were southern businesses, they were southern businesses before the war, and then they would establish, you know, establish presence, a presence in New York. So there really was this fear of the other, this fear of, you know, the outsider, uh, and the and the unknown. A company that a lot of people will recommend is Lehman Brothers. And the financial collapse of 2008 is still fresh in many people's minds. Many people are still recovering from it. And perhaps one of the most notorious examples of this collapse is the bankruptcy and ceasing of operations at Lehman Brothers. Why does Lehman Brothers matter to post-bellum reconstruction? Well, this was really one of the quintessential firms, and it was one of the most central firms um, in the cotton industry. And, and Lehman Brothers was uh, the Lehman Brothers were Jewish. They um, set up shop in Montgomery, Alabama. They opened up a New Orleans branch, uh, and they were shopkeepers. People came in and traded cotton for goods. They supplied goods. People would sell their cotton to the Lehman Brothers, uh, and they really created you know, in the antebellum period, one of the strongest Jewish businesses. And they really sort of set this model because they had accumulated some credit and, you know, had accumulated capital. They had um, strong credit networks and they had these connections to, um, to the North, uh, to the North as well. So after the war, Lehman Brothers emerges in, in great shape. And they are really one of, if not the central firms that are helping to take European investment and funnel it down into the South um, to businesses, Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, they were one of those key firms that, you know, like I said, the South needed credit. The only way they were going to be able to rebuild a collapsed economy is if they had credit. You know, cotton was a, was a credit-based crop. You needed all your supply up front, you needed, uh, you know, foodstuffs, you needed to be able to continue to keep an account. And Lehman Brothers was really a powerhouse after the war, and it became a linchpin to the southern economy, um, in large part, working with other Jews, but also working with with non-Jewish firms. And whenever we think about all these firms and these businesses and these relationships that the buyers and the sellers are creating, there's this term that springs up a lot in the book, and that's the ethnic network. So can you tell the listeners, like, what is an ethnic network regarding Jewish cotton merchants in uh, Reconstruction America? Yeah, I, I think that goes back to that, you know, that, that kind of initial point about, uh, about trust. And this is one way that minority... Um, that minorities are able to kind of have a competitive advantage in in 19th century capitalism, and like I said, it wasn't it, it wasn't just for Jews. Um, it was a way that um, you know business was was predicated on trust, and you would think that okay, that means that as I continue to do business with a company, I start to trust you more and more, and so you know we increase the volume of business. But that's not really the way um, that that trust worked, and trust was often fostered. Outside of um, you know, outside of the business world, J.P. Morgan has this great line about you know I I would uh, there are people I wouldn't lend money to you know on all the bonds of Christendom, but I would give a million dollars to somebody who had you know uh, not a cent in the world as long as I as long as I trusted them. 
Mm-hmm. And because Jews were not interacting with non-Jews, they largely had you know separate social spheres. There were there were certainly interactions. Don't get me wrong, but um, but in terms of you know of, of clubs that they may have belonged to, uh, in terms of of you know family connections and marrying within family, Jews and non-Jews were largely in separate spheres, and that didn't give them the opportunity to build trust yet with a lot of these um, with a lot of these non-Jewish firms. And so Jews really used that shared ethnicity as kind of the glue that, you know, gave them, you know, opportunities for trust. Like if, if you, you know, want to work with a, a company overseas and if you need to, you know, funnel funnel investment, capital investment and goods back and forth, you better really trust the person on the other side of the transaction because there was not a, lot, a whole lot of recourse if that person um, defaulted. And so, so ethnicity really became that trust for these minorities who did not have those same interactions with, with the broader society. And I would, again, emphasize that, that this is not just Jews, and we see the, the same phenomenon happening you know, with Greek merchants in, in, in Egypt, uh, in Egypt's cotton industry. And so it's, it's difficult, it was really difficult for me to sort of get my, wrap my head um, around that, because we just don't think of business you know, happening that way. And, and in large part, this ethnic economy that Jews had kind of came to an end with the rise of cotton exchanges and stock exchanges when transactions become a little bit more impersonal. But while they're personal, it's these ethnic networks, these trust networks that really um, are, are so central to, um, to the industry. One of the things that I really enjoyed is the depiction of the Jewish merchants um, collaborating with freedmen. So the Jewish merchants seem pretty successful in large part um, when they're selling because they are able and willing to collaborate and sell to freedmen, former slaves. So like, what did you find interesting about the partnership between these two populations? So that's a question that I'm still trying to explore. It's a, it's a, it's a big question. It's a question that deserves um, more certainly deserves more study. And so I don't, I'll, I'll say from the outset that I don't profess to have, you know, all the, all, all the answers there. Um, there were claims that either Jews were more lenient and more willing to cross the color line, um, or, you know, by some historians, by some observers, and there were other claims that Jews were particularly exploitative um, to, to, to freedmen, former slaves. And I think the answer, you know, kind of when I, similar to going back to the the issue of of slavery, is that I think Jews acted in large part, you know, like everybody else. Um, This was a system that was undoubtedly exploitative um, toward toward African Americans. It was a system that with the end of Reconstruction, with the end of this hope that African Americans would have, you know, land ownership, and with the beginning of, of you know, eventually kind of a Jim Crow segregated um, South, there's no question that this system, which allowed Jews to, to be successful, was tremendously... Um, it, it was a reconstruction was a was was a failure, um, you know, for African Americans. And I I think if we look at contemporary issues, so much of that stems from um, from the failure of reconstruction. But uh, sorry, go ahead. Nope, go ahead. 
No, but I, I was just going to say that, you know, for those who say that, well, look, you know, so many Jews did business with non-Jews, they must have had this something in mind that made them, you know, more willing to, to cross the, the, the color barrier. I, I, you know, have, have looked at some of the African-American newspapers of the time and seen that non-Jews advertised more heavily uh, in those newspapers than Jews did, which suggests to me that there was not, you know, this, this willingness of Jews to cross the color line that, um, that, that non-Jews didn't have. So it's a situation that I don't think we have um, a firm answer to. It's a, it's a question that is, you know, certainly contested, and, and we see mixed responses, we see mixed reaction, and I, there's a lot more literature to mine. There's a lot more work to do um, on that question. Yeah, one of the things I was really curious about is documentation from the other side. So I kept wanting to know like, what the freedmen, former slaves, thought about the Jewish merchants in general. Can you elaborate a little more on like what you were finding? And like, Was there any like, thing in newspapers that you found, or diary entries, or writings from free- freedmen, former slaves that were writing about the Jewish merchants in the Reconstruction time? Yeah, there were some, and we we see you know mixed um, you know mixed images of of the Jew, and I think it's it, I, I I think there's a lot more work to be done to find more of those to help to complete um, to help to complete the picture. Um, I think that's going to tell us a lot more about what that you know what that relationship was like. I I think that you have a lot more uh, future projects ahead of you, don't you? <laughs> well, I'm 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 working on an article that 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 kind of tries to put that into context and put that economic relationship into context that grapples with some of those questions um, about again what was what was this relationship like because it's so fraught it's such a politically and and emotionally and and morally fraught question and you know I think it's it's again it's important to kind of go back to the sources so um, you know. The, the, the jury's still out on that one. I wish I could give you a more complete example, but, but there's more work to do, not only by me, I think, but, but others, because it's a really important question. So the Reconstruction time was a really economically turbulent time for the South, and so, but Jewish merkin, merchants had a period of success during that time. Was this Jewish mercantile success resented at all in such a challenging time as postbellum America? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, success and I guess take a step back. I think it really depends on time period. Um, it depends on kind of the ups and downs of the economy. It depends on the ups and downs of, you know, kind of an anti-foreigner, anti-outsider sentiment. And so one of the things that, that I was, was kind of really, I guess, excited to, to uncover was and this kind of goes back to the the question a little bit of of, of digging in the archives and sort of what did you, where did you find those kind of aha moments? I found a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment. I found a lot of kind of the opposite. I found a lot of strong businesses in this this Reconstruction period, and I couldn't make sense of it. And I couldn't sort of figure out well why why does there seem to be you know um, you know 1874 why do we seem to you know hear more more complaints and more sort of arguments and so I started really you know putting these into a database kind of mapping out a lot of data points and trying to figure out what do we see what do we have what what happens and so you know for example 1866 and 1867 are very poor crop years and so we see Jews, a lot of Jews really hadn't come at that by that point, but we see a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses pull out of the, the, 
the industry, which created, you know, this period from 1866 to uh, 1868, rather, to about 18, 1873, where times were good. Merchants were making a lot of money. Interest rates were high because of the failures from those previous years. Laws were passed to try to encourage lending. And then all of a sudden, the merchant was doing very, very well. And that becomes a period where there is, you know, more resentment. Then with 1873, the panic of 1873, the, the, you know, the market crash, a lot of Jews go out of business. And so we begin to kind of see, you know, different, different examples. And I, I guess I'd say when, you know, when, when a merchant, Jewish or non, when a, a bank or, or, you know, whatnot lends you money and allows you to open up a business and the business thrives, that bank, that loan is the best thing ever. But when, you know, circumstances change and the economy tanks and the merchant receives, you know, pressure from his or her creditors and all of a sudden you see a foreclosure, then that, you know, that, that person who loaned money is not, you know, viewed in the, in, in the same sort of esteem. So I guess the point is it really, it really depends. It depends on ups and downs. It depends on, um, you know, various, various circumstances and situations. There was kind of a period of anti-Jewish violence that breaks out, um, you know, in, in Louisiana. That that is again tied to this, you know, anti anti outsider, uh, anti foreigner foreigner sentiment. How long did you uh, research for this book? Oh gosh, you know that was something I was trying to think of of, of the other day. Um, this started, and you know, was was not a, a straight shot, but this started in graduate school, and I read a couple of quotes from Mark Twain that sort of alluded to the role of Jews in this period in a in a fairly unsavory way. And I, I started to explore those questions a little bit more. And I ended up writing a paper on it, but it was something that I just kind of filed away and said, you know, hey, I think I, I want to come back to this. So when I finished up with conservative Judaism, um, I, I thought, hey, this is, the, this, this, is the, this is the area that I want to really explore and kind of came back to it. And so this is, you know, at least a good, you know, five years of, um, you know, of, of work, I would say. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to sort of figure, you know, you have to figure out what the story is. You know, you've got something interesting, but you've got to figure out what the story is. And then you've got to, um, you know, do the archival research and be able to, you know, make sure that you've, you've, you've told that story well. So, um, you know, a, a good chunk of time, but I've really been fascinated as I've, you know, as I've been deep in this project. So I'm from Missouri, and I'm just curious if Missouri factored in much during your findings. So I tried to limit myself to, you know, this kind of area, the, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, Alabama, these areas of, of extremely high cotton production and and you know, part of it is this question of well, how long did this take you? This could, this, you know, could, this could take forever. I, I, I had to limit myself in some way. So, um, Missouri didn't come in too much. Certainly there were, well, there were, there were connections of some of these businesses to, um, to St. Louis. There's another story, you know, there's certainly another story to be told. I think as we continue to focus on economic history, um, you know, I, I could have told this story, but, Lots of different ethnic groups in lots of different places, um, but I I chose kind of this this region. I was really drawn to this region because of you know because of that cotton production. So there were some economic ties uh, to St. Louis, but I did not really push um, push beyond that. So Dr. Cohen, I know you have another book as well. Um, maybe if you can just we can kind of bring this to a close today and you can tell people like where they can find you if they want to know more about you and your range of work that you've made over the last few years. 
Sure. Well, the the other book, like we mentioned, it's it's uh, it's called The Birth of Conservative Judaism, and um, that was um, Columbia University Press. Um, and this book, Cotton Capitalist, was NYU Press, and that just came out um, that just came out in in December. And you know, I you can you can certainly find me here at Tulane. You can certainly reach out to me at Tulane, and 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 you know, I've got some planned stops to talk about the book. You know, in LA right now, in New York, and in some of the the small towns around the region. I've just spoken in Charleston, so. Um, so hopefully um, I can, you know, speak to speak to a lot of people and kind of help to get the message out. And, and, you know, certainly, certainly exciting to to, to talk about this stuff. This is an area, you know, you, you, you live this for a long time. And when when this when you, you can finally finally tell the story, it's 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 great to you know, it's great to hear interest. It's great to you know, I've got a lot of a lot of calls and and and, you know, interactions with people who say they you know that was my great grandfather. That was the town that I grew up in. And I'd, I'd always sort of wondered this. So those interactions are really great. Well, that is just fantastic. I'm glad that the uh, interactions have been so positive coming in, um, and it must be nice to see the fruit of that labor come uh, come at you now. Well, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for spending this time with me today to talk about your new book, Cotton Capitalists, um, out now from NYU Press. This has been a real pleasure, sir. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking about it, and, and, and thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 